0: As most of you likely have already recognized today as one of those cultural anniversaries, a milestone that nearly all of us remember, 9-11, the tragedy of those terrorist attacks upon our nation, upon Western civilization. There are all kinds of historical bookends, milestones that mark our lives. I'm of that generation, the first one that I remember is the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Others, it is the Challenger disaster. For others, perhaps it's something even farther back. Those are cultural milestones that tend to, in a sense, anchor our lives. Not that they give our lives significant meaning, although it's possible that we had unusual experiences when we went through those milestones, but they're just ways of orienting our understanding of how we live in the broader scope of the world, the broader world. And One of the questions that has come into my mind as I've looked at our text this week in the book of Titus chapter 2 is the question about how grounded we really are in the way we live. How centered is my life? How how stable is my worldview? Uh, The question is, as you'll see coming out of the text this morning, is how tethered am I to reality? Do I have an understanding of where I've come from, and also where I'm going. Because without that, we tend to be like chaff in the wind. We tend to be like driftwood with the current. We tend to have no stability at all, and we are victims of whatever happens to us instead of understanding that our life is from something somewhere and headed somewhere to someone. The question that we're asking is How easily are we shaken by either the news of the day, by the 9 11s that happened in the world? Or are we, even in our personal troubles and our personal hardships, do we have the kind of grounding? Do we have the kind of firm foundation that equips us to go through those with confidence and to recognize that there's a reason we are here? There's Jesus followers. It's a very churchy-sounding thing to say, but as Jesus followers, the gospel is the foundation and the orientation of all that we are. The good news that God, who is holy, accepts sinners like us through His Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is the foundation and orientation of all that we are and all that we do, not merely Sunday morning, not merely when we go to BSF, not merely when we have our daily devotions but in every single aspect of our lives. We're working our way through the book of Titus, as you know. And I wonder if you'd turn there in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And as we showed you last week, let me point out again, look in verse 1 of chapter 2. These are instructions the Apostle Paul is leaving to a young pastor named Titus who is on the island of Crete and Paul has left but Titus is left with the commission with the responsibility of organizing and setting in order the young immature churches on that island of Crete which had a desperately secular pagan culture and so notice what he says for example in verse number 1 of chapter 2 he says to Titus as for you teach what accords with sound doctrine and then following that verse as we've seen over the last several weeks you have several admonitions and instructions and commands about practical living. Now, catch this this morning. Teach what accords to sound doctrine, and then he gives practical instruction. I think a lot of times there's a dichotomy in our lives and the way we think that doctrine is one thing and the way we live is another. The theology can't be practical, as it were. But what we have here, notice, teach... What accords with sound doctrine, verse 1, and then there's, there are these responsibilities, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, even slaves in their desperate circumstances. And then look at verse 10. We come down after all of these instructions. Part of the purpose of this at the end of verse 10 is so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. God our Savior. So the truth about who our God is, our God who is a saving God, That truth is to be put on display, and let's build it out a little bit, is to be made beautiful by our lives. And then we come to our text this morning, and what we find is this is how we are to live, and we find why we are to live this way, and we also find more instruction about what that looks like. I mean, it's once again a very churchy saying to say we have a God who's a Savior. But the question is, what's that look like? What's that look like in the way you treat your spouse? What's that look like in the way you engage in your education? What's that look like in the way you go about your career? What's that look like in the way you think about retirement or the way you deal with your investments? What does it mean to say we have God who is our Savior? And that's what we'll see this morning. So in your Bibles, look with me, Titus chapter 2, let's begin there again, at the middle of verse 10, and read down through the end of the chapter. Titus 2, beginning in the middle of verse 10, in the middle of a sentence, I recognize that. (coughs) Excuse me. Titus 2, verse 10, and remember as we read, this is God's word for us today. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, nearly all commentators will tell you this is the core of the letter of Titus. This is the core of what Paul wants to say to his young protege. And what we find is we find that here, There's a reveal of how it all works and what it all looks like. And in the middle of these verses, there are doctrines and there are duties. And it is never appropriate, we have to just remind ourselves, to separate those as though they have nothing to do with one another. The duties we are enjoined, we are commanded to, are always connected to the doctrines that are revealed in Scripture. And that's what we'll see. And by the way, you recognize, you've heard it before, everybody's a theologian in one way or another. It's just a question of whether you're an accurate theologian, whether you're yielded to the Word of God or not. But everyone has a view of God and judgment and guilt and freedom and identity and whether there will ever be any accountability. Everybody's a theologian. Just the question, are you one that's informed by God's absolute truth in the Bible? And so, Let's look at what we find here about doctrine and about duty. The first thing the text says, and it's the theme really that flows all the way through these verses, is the text makes it clear that grace has appeared. Notice it in verse 11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, I think grace is one of those, another one of those church words. I think grace is one of those words that, for those of us who have been in church for a while, we've heard it so often, we never stop to think about what it really means, what it really implies. It's kind of like when the husband says he'll be in Home Depot for 15 minutes. That's a meaningless concept. That's vague, because it could be much longer. Originally, in my notes, it was the woman going into Target, but I changed it to Home Depot, so... (laughs) But there's a vagueness that we, we don't really, when we think about grace, we have a fuzziness in our mind, because we're overly familiar with it. So let me just remind you, in the ancient language that the Bible was written in, called Koine Greek, the idea of grace was the idea of a favor that you did for a friend. That was the idea of grace. And it was a common concept, because after all, if you have friends, you have to be willing to do favors, right? But what the Bible does in the message of Jesus Christ is it really turns that concept on its head. Because when the Bible uses, in the context of the gospel, when the Bible uses the term grace, it's talking about the grace of God, which is His favor He gives, not to those who are His friends, first of all, but to those who are His enemies, to those who are rebels against Him. That God, in His astonishing love, gives favor to people who by their constitution, through their birth and then through their choices, are living lives as his enemy. That's the grace of God. Grace is God's supernatural help toward those who don't deserve it. His supernatural help toward those who don't deserve it. Our friend Charles Spurgeon, he tells a wonderful story of one of the princes of Spain who desired to show his benevolence, and so he visited the galley of a slave ship in which convicts were chained to the oars. Uh, his intention was to set one of them free to show how gracious and benevolent he was. And so he goes to man after man, chained to the slaves, asking why they're there. One said, False witnesses told a, a lie about me and I was convicted and that's the reason I'm here in chains. Another said, Well, I did do something wrong, but you know, it really wasn't that bad and I shouldn't be here because it's unworthy based on the crime that I did commit. And on and on, so it went. Each prisoner claiming either innocence or professing that they were the victim of injustice. Finally, it came to one man and again he asked, why are you here? The man said, you ask me why I'm here. I'm ashamed to say that I richly deserve it. I am guilty. I cannot for a moment say that I am not. And if I die at this oar, I thoroughly deserve the punishment. In fact, I think it's a mercy that my life has been spared me. The prince said, it's a pity that such a bad fellow as you should be placed with all these innocent people. I think I shall set you free. And he did. And God does. And one of the reasons we struggle in this modern culture with the concept of grace is because Generally speaking, as rebels, we can never get to the place where we recognize we need it. But grace is God's supernatural help toward those who don't deserve it. And grace is necessary because of our total inability, and we could also phrase that as our unwillingness to be holy, to be righteous, and to be perfect. Grace has appeared. But notice what it says grace has appeared, the first thing that grace does is grace brings us into salvation. We see that in verse 11. Grace brings us into salvation. Verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And coming out of these verses about older women, younger women, older men, younger men, slaves even, all people doesn't mean that every single person in history is going to be saved. It means that all kinds of people can receive the gift of salvation. That's what The context would lead us to understand. Salvation comes to older men, it comes to younger men, it comes to older women, it comes to younger women, it comes to slaves, it comes to slave owners, it comes to Jew, it comes to Gentile, it comes to men, it comes to women, to all people. But it says bringing salvation. Salvation is rather old-fashioned language, isn't it? To be saved. Some of us were raised on that kind of language. But once again, in our culture, it sounds a bit odd. It sounds old-fashioned. Salvation implies deliverance. It implies rescue. It's a dramatic word. You know, partially at least, where the concept comes from. You remember the story in Acts where Paul and Silas are locked in prison and God sends an earthquake in the middle of their praise service, the middle of the night, and all of the Prisoners are loosed, and you remember what happens. It's in Acts 16, verse 29. The jailer is terrified, and he calls for lights, and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be, what? Saved. This is salvation. What are the ways that you need saving in your sin? Before we came to faith, in what ways did we need to be saved? Well, think about it. You needed to be saved from the guilt in which you were born. That's what the Bible teaches. You were born with Adam's guilt attached to you. You say, oh, well, that doesn't really seem fair that I was born guilty because of Adam. Be careful because later on you're declared innocent because of Jesus. If you do away with imputation at the beginning, you undercut the ground of imputation at the end. We are born guilty because of Adam. We needed to be saved from that. Then we chose rebellion. We chose it from the nursery. We've got a beautiful little baby that we're loving, Liam, getting to know him. And you know what though? He's a sinner. I don't know how much his sin is showing up already, but he's a sinner. And leave him a few more months and we'll begin to see it. And by the way, we're going to love him just like you love your kids, who by the way, we're all sinners. Do you remember? our rebellion. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. Also, there's this idea of bondage. The Bible uses redemption language. We are in bondage to sinfulness. And of course, the greatest issue of our needing salvation is the Bible says it's appointed unto every person once to die, and after this comes judgment. You need deliverance because judgment is coming. You need to know that your sins are forgiven because one day you'll stand before the judge. You'll stand before God. We need saving. It's astonishing to read the words of Queen Elizabeth, who died this week. In one of her Christmas messages, she said this, God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, but a Savior with the power to forgive. Because the point is, that's what we need We don't need a coach, we don't need a teacher, we don't need an example, we don't need a philosopher, we need a savior, we need salvation. Now look at the verse again, and let me just ask you a question. For the grace of God has appeared. Now the question is when? When did the grace of God appear? And there is a very precise answer to that, but there's also an applicational answer to that. Let me try to tell you what I, what I mean. I don't know about you, but I know when the grace of God appeared in my life. It was when I was a young boy in a revival service that was being preached by my dad. And though I had heard the gospel from literally my cradle, for the first time I understood the need for me to repent and believe. And these were the old days of an altar call. And I answered that altar call, and my dad met me at the altar and I trusted Jesus as Savior, admitting my sin and putting my hope and faith in Him. In my life, that's when the gospel appeared. And nearly all of us have that kind of memory, hopefully. When the gospel appeared in our lives, and in a sense, that's when grace appeared. You could also argue that, that when did grace appear? Well, it, it appeared in our family. For me, it was when my mom and dad came together when they were married and they were both from, my mom was from a Christian home. My dad was the only believer in his family and yet they founded a Christian home. And I guess you could argue that that's when grace appeared for me. But you go back and you see, in our culture, and our nation, they were citizens of America. They were easily exposed to the gospel. They had churches around them. And so you could say, well, grace appeared because there's a tradition of historic Christianity in our nation. And so there's a sense in which that's when grace appeared. And you'd be right. You could go back through church history and you could argue about the Reformation. You could say, well, grace really appeared or reappeared as a result of the, 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 the renewal of the doctrine of grace and the renewal of the power of the Word of God and, and the recognition of the faults of the ancient medieval church. And you could say that that's when grace appeared. You could go back in history further to the apostles' teaching and the Word. You could go back to the birth of the church. That's when grace appeared. Probably the precise place where grace appeared is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is likely what Paul had in mind. And more than that, his incarnation, his what we'll celebrate at Christmas, the the fact that God came into the world as an infant, but as a human. It was God, he was God, he was also man. And this is when, in a sense, grace appeared in history. And I suppose that's the most precise biblical answer to that. But you could even go back further. You could go back into the Old Testament, look at the promises As God was preparing the way for redemption. And you could argue that grace appeared all the way back then. You could even go back all the way to the law. And you could see evidences even in the law of grace and mercy. And you could say grace appeared in the law. You could even go all the way back to the garden. Because you remember, we've looked at it over the last few weeks. That when sin entered the world, God promised that he would send a deliverer that would crush the head of the serpent. And you could say that's when grace appeared. But I'm going to tell you when grace really appeared. Look in Titus 1. Look at verse 1. Do you remember what we found there? Paul, a servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised... Before the ages began, when did grace appear? Grace appeared in the mystery of the heart and the relationship of the Trinity as God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, never at odds with one another. One God determined to save sinners, in fact, determined to save you, determined to save me. There's a sense in which that's when grace appeared. And what I'm trying to get you to see this morning is that our experience of grace for me when I was a seven-year-old in Belleville, Indiana, outside Indianapolis... When I experience God's grace, when you experience God's grace, in a sense, it was the unfolding of a process that according to Titus and according to the Word of God began not just in the Reformation and not just with Jesus, although culminated there, obviously, it's the Gospel, not just with His incarnation, but it began before time. There's a reason I belabor the point. I hope it will be clear before we're through. But that to me is astonishing. What we profess this morning in our own individual lives has eternal foundation. It has eternal roots. Now what this implies is that on our own we are no match for our depravity. We need salvation. But because of the flesh that we still drag around, we also are no match for that flesh. And therefore we need salvation. Grace in sanctification. Look at it again. Grace trains us towards sanctification. Grace trains us. Beginning in verse 12, training us. Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Training there in verse 12, it's the idea of raising up children. It's bringing children along to maturity. It includes discipline. You might call it coaching or mentoring. If that concept helps you understand it. We use the term here, equipping, and I think that's a good way to understand it. Grace equips us. Grace equips us for what we need. Now, open your Bibles. We'll come back to Titus 2, but go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to lay eyes on this text this morning because what we're going to find is there's a putting off and a putting on, and that's not merely a matter of discipline, We are trained to do this based on God's grace. That's where we're headed. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 17. Ephesians 4, verse 17. The same author, human author, Paul, is writing, and he says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles, that's kind of shorthand for pagans or unbelievers, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. By the way, this is another kind of description that Paul gives Titus about Crete, right? It's the same kind of godless culture. But look at what verse 20 says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Remember what Titus... Two says, grace instructs us, grace trains us. Here, it's the same concept. But here, it's not grace, it's Christ himself. Christ has taught the Ephesian believers. Christ has taught us. And what has Christ taught us? What have we learned from him? Look in verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, here's what you're taught, verse 22. Watch these words. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you catch those concepts? Put off and then put on. And that's what we find here in Titus chapter 2. Putting off, look in verse 12, training, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace trains us to put off. Grace trains us to say no. And listen carefully, as you grow, we will never reach perfection on this. We recognize until we die or Jesus comes. But until we do, your goal and the way to track your progress is to where more and more reflexively you say no to more and more where you're given over to the spirit as opposed to your sinful flesh so that when you are encountered with, look at it again, ungodliness or worldly passions, you reflexively resist. You say no. We're not talking about you're living your entire life as a Christian and every single day you're battling and you're going through an a, a excruciating battle of shall I yield to this temptation or not. The point is the more you walk with Christ, the more you are trained by grace, you will be trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, I could stop here and go down a long rabbit trail of how countercultural this is. Because one of the things implied in these words is the sinful desires that still dwell within us, we are to renounce those. Do you recognize, are your ears tuned to how countercultural that is? The idea that what you want, perhaps you should say no to, what you are drawn to, perhaps you should renounce. What you from time to time perhaps even crave, it may well be that you should run from. You know as well as I do that we have reached a place where the message, pervasive message of our culture, is never restrict yourself. Never say no to yourself. Be who you think you are. The danger of that is so many of us are blind in who we think we are. And this text says we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And those passions come from our flesh. They come from the sinfulness around us. You know, I think there's much we can learn from church history. And in very liturgical churches throughout history, and there have been a lot of problems with this, but there used to be baptism vows. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. But as an example, this comes out of Anglicanism. There is a baptism vow that says this. Here's the question. Dost thou renounce Satan and all his works, the vain pomp and glory of the world with all covetous desires of the same and the carnal desires of the flesh so that thou wilt not follow or be led by them? And the expected answer by the baptismal candidate is I renounce them all. Grace trains us for that on an ongoing basis, not just at our baptism, but daily, that there are places in our lives where grace has trained us that we need to say no. And it's grace that does so. It's this favor that God gives us. And can you see, and instinctively I think we get this, especially I think it's easier for those of us who are parents and maybe even grandparents, can you see that That grace moves our hearts infinitely more effectively, far beyond the, well, I better not do this or I'm going to get in trouble. That's not what's in view here, although it's true, but that's not what's in view. It's not, I better not do this or I have to do this because it's a responsibility, although duties are legitimate, but this is grace that's training us. You all recognize, perhaps, maybe you don't, law living never works. Law living never works because law excites our spirit of disobedience. This is the point, I think, of Romans 7. I don't have time to exposit it this morning, but the whole point of Romans 7, you know Romans 7, that which I want to do, I don't do, that which I don't want to do, I do. The whole point of Romans 7 isn't necessarily the ongoing struggle of the Christian life, although it is descriptive of that sometimes. The point of Romans 7 is in the past tense, under the old law, it could not bring holiness. And even in the new covenant, under the new covenant, if you're going to live by law, it still doesn't bring holiness. Grace is what trains us. Recognizing who we are, this is what has come to be called recently gospel-centeredness. It's that everything we have, everything we understand, everything we know is grounded in this good news of the gospel. Grace trains us to put off, and then in verse 12 also, grace trains us to put on. There's a putting on. You see it in verse 12? And training us to live self-controlled. Now watch this. Self-controlled has to do with our internal spirits. In other words, you could think of controlled as inward. And then it says upright, so that has to do with how we live outwardly, and godly lives, that would how we live toward God. So inward, outward, and if we could say it this way, upward. This is how we're to live. And grace is what trains us to do this. And notice the point at the end of the verse, in the present age. So that's what grace does. And We have to recognize there are duties here, there are responsibilities, but the duties and responsibilities are rooted in not so much warnings, although there's a place for warnings, not so much fear, although there's a place for fearing the holiness of God, but primarily these responsibilities of putting off and putting on are rooted in the grace that we have through Jesus Christ. We have to take this seriously. One preacher said it this way. He said, these days, facing temptation, too often, it's not yes or no, but it's whatever. Whatever. And you know that's true. And we can look at other people and look down at them, but then we also have to recognize that there are those corners of our lives where instead of saying yes and no, sometimes we tend to say whatever. And what do we do with that? Do we go back in fear and terror, or do we go back to the incredible grace that God has given us in Jesus Christ and be retrained by grace? Because grace is what trains us to renounce ungodliness and also to live inwardly, outwardly, and upwardly in a way that pleases our God. You know, there's a futility to trying to try harder. But this gospel-centeredness reminds us that the orientation to fight sin, the place we find virtue, it always circles back to Jesus and what He's done. This is not unique to the text in Titus. You know the passage in Ephesians 2 where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God at work in the past and in the present and toward the future. It is God who has his purpose. And so we have the Holy Spirit within us. We have the Word of God which directs us. We have the church in its ministry as we are strengthened and built up in the church. This is how we put off. This is how we put on. This is how grace trains us. We're to say no to the world and yes to the Savior in the here and now, in the here and now. That's at the end of the verse where he says, in this present age, and we're to do that until glory appears. You see, grace has appeared, verse 11 and 12, but also glory will appear, verse 13. Grace has appeared, glory will appear. Look at it in verse 13. We're to do this, we're to live this way, we're to say no, we're to say yes, we're to put off, we're to put on in this present age, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, and that's waiting with eagerness, not dread. Waiting with eagerness for our blessed hope. And hope in the Bible, you know, is not uncertainty, as it often is in our world. Hope is rooted in God's promises, and God's promises are sure. So that's where we get our hope. So look at it again, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The glory, the treasure, is not heaven. It's not the absence of pain It's not relieving suffering. All of that is wonderful, and that is part of our hope. But you know what the treasure is here? You know what the glory is? The glory is Jesus. He's the treasure. He's our Savior. Jesus Himself. How little Jesus is regarded today. How little Jesus is regarded sometimes in our lives. Thought experiment and fair warning... Stole this from Twitter this week, all right? Thought experiment. Would you rather have lunch with Jesus in person or a billion dollars? Now, I know how your mind works because it's how mine worked. It said, I'm going to be with Jesus eternally, but I could do a lot of good stuff with a billion dollars. That's how we rationalize these things. Whether we really treasure the appearing of Jesus in glory, that's the question. Because that's the glory, that's the treasure. And that includes deliverance from evil's influence, yes indeed, from the flesh, from the world, from the devil. All of that will be delivered from when Jesus comes back and we'll dive into Revelation here in a few weeks and celebrate that incredible promise. But glory will appear. And so do you catch where we are? We're living between grace and grace. And glory that's the definition of our lives we live between grace and glory we've experienced God's grace and we look for his glory and that's what's implied in this text this is the argument for for these believers on Crete and it's no different for us in California right that grace has appeared and grace has saved us, and grace also is training us to put off and put on, to say no and to say yes. That's what we're going through right now, and we do that anticipating that soon, we don't know when, but soon glory will appear, either with our death or with the coming of Jesus himself. We will experience his glory. So do you see what's happening here? You have the glorious real-world historic truths that grace came in the past. You're tethered to that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That there literally was a a Jew who lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, manifest the power of God with miracles, was rejected by his people, was crucified by the Romans, and he emptied that grave on Sunday morning. Tethered in history. But if we're, not te- if we're only tethered on one hand, then we're at risk. But what Paul is saying is grace has appeared and glory will appear. And so you tether yourself to that promise as well. That promise which is as certain as this promise from the past. And when you are tethered to the past and you're tethered to the future, you see you have security you have a solid grounding. And so you have a solid grounding whether the times are beautiful and glorious, and thank God He gives us those times. But you also are grounded and tethered when times are tumultuous and times are tragic and sometimes times are heartbreaking. And nearly every heart in this room can give testimony to those times. And your strength and your confidence, and dare I say it, even your emotions, they will be dictated by how strongly you sense this tethering to the past, in the gospel, in grace appearing, to how faithfully and consistently you are allowing grace to train you to put off and put on, but also recognizing that you are also tethered to the future glory that this text promises will come. I think I've told you the story before the Pilkingtons were with me when we went through Hezekiah's Tunnel. Hezekiah's Tunnel is an astonishing, really, wonder of the ancient world where there's a water tunnel under the city, ancient city of Jerusalem that somehow they dug in the ancient world. They dug from two directions and they matched far below the city. And you can walk now through that tunnel, which has about anywhere from 18 inches to a foot or so of, or a couple of feet of water. And you, can, you, you enter at one place and then they tell you you're going to come out at the other end. And it is compressed and it's dark. And I want to tell you, walking through Hezekiah's tunnel was one of the most exhilarating and terrifying moments of my life. I was so ready for it to be over 10 seconds after I was in. In fact, if there hadn't been a bunch of people behind me, including the Pilkingtons and my sister, I would have turned around and gone back. But you know, in the middle of that, here's what I kept thinking. This has been done thousands of times before. I know that there was a way to get in, and I know there's a way to get out. If for no other reason my son had done it about half a dozen times, and he happens to think this is about the coolest thing on the face of the earth, pray for him. There's something wrong with him, all right? But you see, the whole point of that is it was survivable and we kept going because we knew where we had come in, but we also had absolute confidence that there was a way to get out. Now, can I just stop and ask you for a moment to think about the people around you? I don't know, maybe some of you today, a handful of you. And you, maybe you know where you came from, But the people around us have no sense of what that future will be they have no belief in christ so they have no belief in the return of christ they have no sense of the glory that will come they're just getting along doing the best they can how heartbreaking that is do you see how terrifying and how hopeless and how empty That is, do you wonder why they chase after things that you and I think, why would they give their lives to that? Because they have no certain, no sense of what the future will hold. This should break our hearts. It should move us in our affections. And for God's people, we should find a sense of confidence, quiet confidence, because we are tethered to the past and we are tethered to the future glory that this text says will come. And therefore, by God's grace, what you have here is you have the responsibility and opportunity to make our God look good in the already, but not yet. It's a very helpful phrase, the already, but not yet. There are these promises that we hold, but we haven't received them in their fullness. But as we live life, we're here to make our God look good. Here, because we've already received His grace and His grace trains us, but not yet because His glory is still to come. And this is explained in verse 14. We are suspended, sometimes uncomfortably, as John Stott said. We are suspended, sometimes uncomfortably, between the already and the not yet. But look in verse 14. There's a summary of all of this. And this may be the summary of the book, I think. In verse 14... This one who is our Savior, Jesus Christ, from verse number 13, the one who gave himself, he did it voluntarily, and he did it for us. Don't miss those words. He gave gave himself in our place. The idea of for us is instead of us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's the first problem. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. This is what God does in the gospel. This is what we've experienced rooted in this grace that came. The grace, what it does is it redeems us from the bondage of our lawlessness and it also cleanses us from the guilt of our sin. And then God is pleased to take these people who are freed and who are cleansed and he says, those are my people. Those are my people. How many of you, you were raised on the King James Bible? Just raise your hand real quickly. This verse in the King James Bible It reads, a peculiar people, a peculiar people. And so my churches took that very literally. We were supposed to be oddballs. That's the way they interpreted that verse. But what peculiar meant in 1611 is not what it means today. This phrase, peculiar people, in 1611, it's an accurate reflection of what the Greek means. It means a people of his very own, his special possession. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. This is God's grace. Because He took rebels like us, and because of what He did in the grave, in the grace of Jesus Christ, He has made us a people for His very own special possession. And the primary characteristic of these people, the people who are His own, the primary characteristic is that we are zealous for good works. There is something transformative about the gospel. There's something transformative about salvation. I want to confess to you, I think that sometimes we overplay this effort to kind of satisfy ourselves. The kind of, yeah, nobody's perfect. We all struggle. I I wonder if sometimes, and sometimes I think this flows out of the pulpit, I think sometimes we're so eager to say, yeah, we all struggle, none of us measure up, that we're satisfied with a substandard Christian life. God should be, and by that I mean we should be allowing grace to train us in such a way. We should be so tethered to the past and tethered to the future glory that we should be experiencing the transforming grace of God to where more and more we are manifesting the good works That are described here in verse 14, a zealousness for good works, a renouncing of ungodliness. And if I don't do that more faithfully than I did a year ago, and certainly more faithfully than I did 10 years ago, and definitely more faithfully than I did 30 years ago, I need to reevaluate what I understand the Christian life to be. Let's get off of this tendency to just always give ourselves a pass about holiness, about godliness, about faithfulness. And let's recognize that, yes, we all are still struggling, but we're struggling in the journey, being trained by grace to renounce ungodliness and to say yes to holiness and to be a people of God's own possession, zealous for good works, the faithfulness a willingness to say no, a willingness to say yes, where that's appropriate. This faithfulness is who we are as God's people. And so you've got assurances here. You've got the assurance of His return. You've got this assurance of, his, of our unique and secure identity as His special possession. I've tried to be careful talking too much about our grandkids but there's something about the way especially Grammy treats the grandkids that really is transformative to them. I could argue in my theolo- with my theologian's cap that she is reinforcing their c- belief that they're the center of the world. I could argue that. But what I see is the fruit of their delight that they know that there is a person in this world who absolutely, unconditionally, totally, and completely loves them. And there's a freeing sense of comfort in that that I see brighten their hearts and their faces when they're around her. And that is just the smallest picture of what the grace of God should do for us. That our God delights in us. He knows everything about us. We've never surprised Him. He delights in us because we are a reflection of His glory as rebels forgiven by His grace. And there is comfort and assurance and security in that. So let me go back to my metaphor. We are tethered by this mystery of God's grace and this promise of Jesus' return in glory and that gives us a sense of confidence and assurance. And so when everything is going wrong, and it may, I know some of you have experienced loss that is beyond my comprehension. But I'm here to tell you that when you are tethered by grace in the past, that grace has appeared and it trains us It brings us salvation and it trains us and you are tethered to the certain promise of the glory of God when Jesus comes back. It will give you confidence and strength to withstand any storm. That's who we are. And what this text is telling us is we need to regularly remind ourselves of that. We need to reorient ourselves I think it's a reorientation that needs to happen every day. The Apostle Paul in another place writes about this in Romans 12. You know these verses. I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. You see, I think that has to be a daily decision. Do not be conformed to this world. This is renouncing ungodliness, right? This is what we read about in Titus. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I think that's every day. I think every day we have to remind ourselves, wait wait, a minute, wait a minute. I'm tethered to the past, and I'm looking to the future. There's grace and there's glory. I'm living between grace and glory. And therefore, when we allow our minds to be renewed, We're able to test and discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, grace is training us. When we remember who we are, we are better equipped to renounce what we ought to renounce and embrace what we ought to embrace. And this is gospel living every day, here and now, in light of eternity. Your takeaway today is lean into grace and wait for glory. Lean into grace and wait for glory. Many of the old preachers have told the story of Charles Berry. It's been told now for well over a century. He was a preacher, well-known preacher in New York City in the 1800s, and he had come there from England and was known as a powerful preacher, but he was not always that. Before he arrived at Plymouth Church in Brooklyn, he had preached and held to what some call a frail or a a fragile gospel. His message was this, Jesus was a magnificent man, a terrific teacher, a fine philosopher but he didn't believe Jesus was the savior of sinners. But all of that had changed. It had changed while he was serving his first church in England. He sat in his study one day and there was a knock at the door and looking out he saw a typical street girl ragged clothes, unkempt, unclean. He opened the door and he said, yes, young lady, what can I do for you? And she said, are you a minister? He said, I am. And she said, you must come with me quickly. I want you to get my mother in. Knowing the poor girl's neighborhood and looking at her appearance, he thought this girl's mother was probably sleeping off a binge of drunkenness in the gutter somewhere. And He said, young lady, I think it would be best if you would go to the police for them to assist you. They can give your mother a place off the street. She said, no, 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 no. Sir, my mother is dying, and you must come and get her into heaven. That, of course, was a different matter. So Pastor Barry gathered his coat and followed the girl through the dark streets and ended up finding himself at the bedside of a dying woman. And he told her, He told this dying woman how Jesus was kind and how Jesus had shown us how to live and how Christ was an excellent example of morality and how to live. The lady may have been dying, but she was no fool. She interrupted the preacher. She said, Mr., that's no use for the likes of me. I'm a sinner and I've lived my life. Can't you tell me of someone who can have mercy upon me and save my dear soul? Barry with a dying woman, and he realized he had nothing to say. Nothing that would help. In the face of damning sin and eternal death, he had no message, no message that could make a difference. Right then and there, he made a decision. He set aside all his grand learning that he'd gone through in seminary, all that he had emphasized about Jesus' humanity and example but all the ignoring of the Savior's deity and His salvation. He forgot all of that. He set that aside and he remembered the best teacher he ever knew was his mother. He remembered what she had taught him as a little boy about one whose great love had carried the worst of our sins, the one who was called our Savior, the one who'd come to live and then to die, the Redeemer who ransomed souls from sin and death, who allowed himself to be crucified, and most of all, who had conquered death and resurrection, and therefore there was hope of glory, hope of eternal life. The pastor spoke simply and clearly and gently of this Savior, the Savior who could comfort a little girl who was losing her mother, the Savior who could give hope, more than hope, faith, to a sinful woman who was destined to soon take her last breath. And as he talked, he watched as the Holy Spirit worked in those hearts, Tears ran down the woman's cheek and her voice gravel filled with emotion and years of sin croaked out. Now that's the stuff I need to hear. Now you're getting it. Now you're helping me. Now you're getting me in. And that's the grace that brings us salvation. Salvation and that brings us sanctification, that trains us, and that keeps us going until glory. Father, speak to our hearts today. Remind us that we stand in grace and we wait and look for glory. For those of us who have comfortable lives, remind us of the things that really do matter. And for those of us who are going through heartache or trial, solidify our footing tethered to your grace that has appeared and looking forward to your glory that will come. Do this work. For the sake of the glorious name of Jesus, who is our great treasure, in his name we pray. Amen.